following podcast is for parents, maybe not for kids. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, January 28th, the College Sticker Shock edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate. I'm the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 15, and Harper, who's 13, and we live in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Jamila Lemieux. I'm a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is seven, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's eight, Oliver, who's six, and Teddy, who's four, and we live in Navarre, Florida. On today's show, we will be talking with the New York Times' Ron Lieber about his new book, The Price You Pay for College. No matter how old your kids are or how terrifyingly close college is, you're going to want to hear this discussion. After that, we'll be answering a question from a mom who is struggling with resentment and regret over having a kid at all. She's in a dark place. We're going to try and talk her off the ledge. On our Slate Plus bonus segment, we'll be joined by Slate's very own Rebecca Onion to talk about the politicization of kids' safety and helicopter parenting in the post-Trump era, based on her very good essay published in Slate this week. As always, we have triumphs and fails. We got recommendations. Let's start with triumphs or fails. Jamila, how about you? Do you have a triumph or a fail for us this week? Well, I have a fail. It is an update on a story that you all may be aware of, uh, my co-host and producer Rosemary So let's rewind three Tuesdays ago now. Naima, my daughter, comes to me uh, right before we record the show. She's got a little cut over her eye and some peeling skin around the eye area. And she's like, mommy, something's wrong with my eye. I'm like, oh, my goodness. It looks like she's having some sort of allergic reaction. I make a doctor's appointment uh, for later that afternoon. Some time passes. She comes back to me because she's in Zoom school. I'm working. And she says, oh, you know, my eye feels better. And I look and the, the peeling skin is gone. And so I'm like, what the hell? You know, and, and I question maybe this was drool something, whatever it was, it's gone. Okay, I feel so silly. In fact, this was going to be last week's fail that I made a doctor's appointment for my child for either dried spit or or mucus or something on her face that I thought was a skin, you know, problem. And so last Tuesday, she's all upset. I'm like, what's wrong? And I look at her face. And so now we're having the same problem as before. It legitimately looks like something is wrong. Like you sent us a picture. Yes. And I want to say like it it definitely looks like something is wrong. Because this looks like some sort of skin, you know, problem. Like a, like a peeling, out. exactly like you described it. There's like some bruising and some peeling. It's very scary. It's very scary. Bleeding above both her eyes. It's like so above I'm, the eyes. <laughs> yes. So I'm thinking that the it's skin. Scary. Right. Because the skin above your eyes is thinner. And I'm thinking she's bleeding there because she's rubbing it. So I can't rub it. I can't get a wet towel on it. You know, I call the doctor back, make another appointment for that afternoon. Take her after the show. I get there. The doctor looks at her and he says, well, this isn't skin. I say, excuse me. He's like, well, this is something external. This is on her face. And I'm like, what? And so we, you know, the doctor and I have both done, Naima, did you put anything on your face? Did you put anything on your face? Because her father and I were convinced that she'd been experimenting with some of my beauty stuff, maybe. I thought maybe she'd put a skin peel or, you know, have stuff that's way too strong for a little person's skin, you know, and, and that maybe she could have hurt herself that way. So she's still, no, no. And then she says, so um, I was holding a marker and it is possible that like it got over my eye. That like I bumped my face with the marker and it got by my yeah, eye. The way the way that you do, the way you bump your face <laughs> perfectly marker, in the yeah. corner of your eye, perfectly uh-huh. right uh, in a straight line over your eyes. So at that point, I excuse myself for a moment 
and step out into the hallway, just take a breath, because I already know it's about to be some bullshit. I already know. When she said the marker, because I've heard about the marker has been in the hand and got on things for years. The marker's been in my hand and drew a tattoo on me. The marker's been on my hand and drew on the wall. So now the marker has gotten on my face. Okay, here's what happened. And this was all revealed. This took multiple interviews with the suspect um, for us to get all of this information together. This was a combination of work between myself, the doctor, Naima's dad, and the therapist. Everybody came together and here's what we figured out happened. Naima um, sometimes does a little makeup before Zoom school, which we've allowed because fuck it. Like if a little sparkle brings some joy into your bleak life right now, go for it. She didn't have time to get glammed up this day. So she's, she's not feeling herself. She decides to improvise with a little marker. So what I'm thinking is blood coming from my child's eyes is actually brown marker that she'd used as eyeshadow. So as far as the peeling skin, she noticed that her skin was dry and she decided to put what she thought was lotion on her face. It was hair gel. (laughs) So now, according to Naima, she did hold out as long as she could and not tell me about the hair gel. She thought that whatever she lotion that she'd put on her face is what was doing this to her. So mm. it wasn't that she was 100% in on the like, okay, I'm just got shit on my face that I put here and now we're going to the doctor. Because I kept saying, why did you let me take you all the way to the doctor? Why didn't you, why? And, and she said, you know, but I thought, you know, I thought it was doing something to me. It would have been helpful if she'd mentioned that she'd put something on her face, but she didn't. And so my family, of course, my mother's like, you know, I would have looked at it and been like, go get a wet towel. I'm like, I'm sure you said, you said that. But also remember, it was in her eyebrows. It's in her, you know, her baby hair. So it's hurting because it's pulling. Every time I try to pull it off or peel it, it, it's hurting. And so my fail is taking my daughter to the doctor with a face full of hair gel after narrowly avoiding the same thing the week prior. I just, I don't know anymore, you guys. I don't know. I reject your fail because you were so calm when you thought it was a rash. And then even when you texted that it was what had happened... You were so calm. That is a is a success. I think it I'd just like to broke commend me. Commend everyone <laughs> on the journalistic work that you've done there to cut through the sort of police esque passive voice double speak. Right, a marker was in my hand and it may have gotten on my face. There was a child involved markering, and one child was markered, <laughs> but we don't know how it actually happened. You guys got in there and you found the truth with rigorous investigative work. Sometimes investigative reporting takes time and resources. Yes. It doesn't just happen in one day. Sometimes you need weeks to sort through all the evidence. So great job there. I'm putting this one up for a Pulitzer. Thank you. You're welcome. Elizabeth, what about you? Trying for fail. I have a fail, but I'm going to just claim it as a triumph. So we <laughs> took the kids camping this weekend down to Manatee Springs State Park where you can like kayak with manatees and it's lovely and it was kind of a gamble booking in january because the weather you know can be very iffy and we ended up with beautiful temperatures but it like rained the whole time but we camp a lot so we have like things we just kind of naturally do but this is the first time camping henry is on a new like anti-inflammatory diet which basically makes us gluten-free vegans which means there's very little we can eat Congratulations to you guys. Yeah. So somehow we packed no beans at all. <laughs> the only thing the that only thing the only thing we can, can eat. eat. 
when you camp, the meals are so important. Like the entire kind of camping experience revolves around like activity, come back, make a fire, you know, meal. We ran out of gas to cook. And because it rained, all the wood (laughs) was wet. So we did discover that you can start fire with Fritos. Wow. (laughs) So like they create a beautiful huge fire that you could just put the big dried wood. We were smart enough to like keep the wood we brought in the car. No, no, stop. You're skipping the point in which it occurred to you to start a fire with Fritos. Well, I just thought, well, <laughs> we were... They're high-end hydrogenated we thinking, oils. Surely that, that shit's burn. Burn. Yeah, we thought the yeah. oil might burn, but they really burn for a long time. They're really great. I think um, as Henry's decided, every survival bag should have a bag of Fritos because <laughs> so you can both eat right them. Right now in the Frito-Lay company, yeah. <laughs> in the legal department, a hundred sirens just started going off and they're running around... Like, uh, <laughs> like it's nuclear war. I could tell you. They found the out. They yeah. found yeah. out. <laughs> I think I did read once that like Doritos burn really well, but that oh makes my sense God, you're, to me. Stop. It's going to be the end of the show. <laughs> anyway, we started our, our, Frito, our Frito fires. So we were able to cook some things like we had some corn, but every meal was kind of a disaster. And then. Like the redeeming factor of being here is like all the animals that we can see. And so the kids were so into seeing the manatees and we had deer running around. And then we had put the kids to bed and I'm sitting with Jeff out by our fire and I like see something move and we, he turns on his headlamp and there's a raccoon like right there. And it just like sure. keeps, keeps coming Drawn back. Drawn by the smell of burning Fritos. Yeah, exactly. Cause our fire was made of Fritos. <laughs> yes. So um, then There's like an armadillo coming around. Okay, so we take videos of all this stuff. The next morning when we show them the videos, they were pissed. They were pissed that we didn't wake them up. They were so mad at us about these animals. And then they wanted to like stay up the next night. And of course, the animals didn't come back. It was, yeah. So anyway, we had a lovely time. I thought it was a great trip. We kayaked with manatees. I think it's a triumph. Did you see the Trump manatee? Were you able to soothe the poor, sad Trump manatee? No, but we were telling Henry about that. And he was like, we have to tell the ranger. And we were like, no, no, one of these manatees is not the Trump manatee. And he's like, why would you do that? We were like, yes, why would you do that? It's a terrible thing to do. But he was like ready to kayak back and have them rescue the animal right then. We were like, no, you know, he's like, where is the Trump manatee? It was a whole thing. But they are, they're beautiful Creatures and you know the sad part is this is, <laughs> here's your environmental message of the day. The, the manatees have no natural predators. Like they are only basically suffering because of humans not caring for them. Well, That's Henry the is gonna fight against that <laughs> yeah. to the depths of his soul. <laughs> yeah, he is. So good job. All right, I'm reversing my um usual mode here and I'm going with a triumph that it, is eventually revealed to be a fail, if you can believe such a thing. So <laughs> recently we came across, like buried in the basement somewhere, this little book that uh, Alia got, I think when Harper was born, I think her mom gave it to her. It's called The Mom's One Line a Day Book. Many of you, mm-hmm. our listeners, I see both of you nodding, received things like this when a child was born. And the idea of it is that it's like a little diary or journal where every day, you're not meant to like write out paragraphs and paragraphs about your day. You're just meant to just write down a single thing about your kids so that later in your life, you have something to look back at and remember those early days by. It's from the year 2010, which is uh, just after we first moved to Virginia. The kids were not babies, but they were little. They were like five and three. And it is a total goldmine, this thing of adorable things that our children said and did. And, you know, 
comical moments between them and we've been reading them to the kids and they are just laughing and laughing and Harper pulled it out again the other night and just brought it to the dinner table and read them to us while we all ate dinner. And that's the triumph of sorts. But the problem is that Ali only did that book for like 26 days and then the whole rest of the book is completely empty. And now that's 26 days more than I ever wrote anything down about our kids when they were little. So I'm not criticizing Alia. Please, Alia, know that. But I am noting that like this is sort of illustrative of a grand fail on our part that we that we knew we could avert ahead of time. When when Alia was pregnant, we had everyone telling us, just write anything down. Write anything down. It doesn't matter. You're going to be so tired, but find a way to do it because you'll be so grateful to have that later. And we just didn't fucking do it. And our kids ask us for stories all the time of their baby years. And we have just basically run out. We have like four stories of them as babies. They're all about Lyra. (laughs) And then they're always like, why didn't you write anything down? And we're like, we were fucking exhausted the whole time. And we were overwhelmed. And if we could ever even get you to bed, all we could do is watch TV and pass out. And we were not writing anything down, but we didn't. And that is our fail. We just have like no stories to tell them at all. And they're constantly disappointed about that. But it's just a blur those first five years, other than these 26 gems that we just (laughs) discovered unearthed uh, from the basement. I feel grateful, honestly, that um, and I think I've talked about this on the show before that, like, at least starting in 2013, I've got this podcast (laughs) as like an archive so that when I'm 90, I can go back and listen to the podcast and be reminded of all the ways that I failed my kids. But I'm sure I'll feel a warm glow that at least I saved something from those years. But the eight years before that, a black box. Someone gave me one of those one line a day journals uh, last year, and I probably only recorded 26 days myself. Mm -hmm. So I understand. That's going to be so golden when you look back on it, though. You're going to be so so happy with those 26 days of information. I am. I can't relate, guys. I filled a book and a half of those. (laughs) (laughs) Crushing us as ever. As always. I I ignore my children to fill out the book, right? Like they do something and I'm like, nobody move. See, that's good advice. I wish someone had given me that advice. (laughs) Like as I was Take 10 minutes a day to just fucking turn your children off and write in the book. I'm sure yep. they were screaming in the crib while I was happily baby journaling, but each of them have a book that makes their, you know, years <laughs> look amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Good job. All right, let's move on to some business. In our Slate Plus segment today, Slate's Rebecca Onion will join us to talk about how the Trump era has changed conversations about overparenting. It's all about her totally fascinating essay in Slate's special section published this week, What We've Learned. Here's a sneak peek of what you'll hear if you're a member of Slate Plus. And all sort of with this this discourse of, oh, the state is doing too much. Like, people don't need all of this. Um, and like a lot of me was like, well, actually, we do need that. <laughs> like, we, we built that up for a reason. And some of it is probably too much, but don't try to shame me into not needing this. I, I actually do think we need this. All right. So to hear segments like that, plus to just get all your podcasts ad free, sign up for Slate Plus. It's just 35 bucks for your first year. And it is a great way to support all your favorite Slate podcasts, of which we are, of course, the most favorite. Plus, you won't hit a paywall on the site, so you can keep up with all of Slate's journalism across every platform. So, support mom and dad are fighting. Go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus and join Slate Plus today. 
And while you're on uh, the internet, why not sign up for Slate's parenting newsletter? It's the best place to hear about everything that we publish about parenting, including mom and dad are fighting, ask a teacher, care and feeding, starring Jamila Lemieux, and much more. It's also, you know, just a, a personal email from me with some nightmare story from my parenting life every single week. So sign up at slate.com slash parenting email. And if right now you are really desperately craving some kind of connection with other parents, you can find them on our parenting group on Facebook. It is super active. It is full of nice people. It is full of good advice. Sometimes it's just full of commiseration. If that's what you need, we also moderate it. So there's no jerks. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook and join today. Okay, back to the show. All right, let's move on to our first segment. So Lyra is about 15 years old, which means I am now 15 years into my standard explanation to Alia that we simply do not need to panic about college costs because surely by the time Lyra is old enough to go to college, (laughs) the tuition bubble will burst and prices will plummet and we will be totally fine. We got two years to go for that to happen. So needless to say, I'm very excited to welcome New York Times columnist, best-selling author, and friend of the pod, Ron Lieber, to the show. His new book is called The Price You Pay for College, and he is here to tell me that I'm right. The bubble is about to pop. Welcome back to the show, Ron. We're so happy to have you. I'm thrilled to be back. I don't know how welcome I will be after I tell you that there is no bubble and that it's not going to pop, but there we are. I can't hear you. All right, so... Let's uh, talk about this book and about what you've learned from talking to basically everyone under the sun about how college works, how paying for college works, and how real families across America are dealing with and thinking about this situation. So my first question for you is a pretty simple one, but it's something that I think a lot of people don't think about, and you talk about it in your book. Who actually pays sticker price for college? Who are those people, and what can we learn from what they go through? Well, the statistics tell us that it's just over 10% of people who pay the sticker price. And the majority of those people, maybe the vast majority, uh, are doing so at state institutions where the sticker price is lower. Some of us in the media are used to reading a lot and maybe writing too much about the 100 most selective colleges and universities in America, of which maybe 80 to 90 are private. And at those institutions, there can be more than 50% of people paying full price. And so we get used to thinking about the fact that a lot of people are doing that, but a lot of people actually aren't. How do colleges determine who the students are who pay that sticker price? And if you're applying with your child to a bunch of colleges, how should you think about how likely you are to be one of those people? Well, the framing of your question is interesting because it suggests more power in the hands of the colleges than they actually have. Uh So the thing that was so interesting to me um, about reporting this book is that I was trying to find the segment of the marketplace where the ability to pay was clashing with the willingness to pay. In other words, there are plenty of people who could afford to pay, let's call it $75,000 a year for the full price at a private college or university, but they are increasingly questioning whether they should have the willingness to do so. And that willingness is creeping up um, the, the the market, as you might describe it. I mean, imagine the market looking like the US news list for back, lack of a better ranking, right? Right around spot let's call it spot 40, right? If you combined all of the most selective schools in America, right around 
spot 40. Below spot 40 is where people are questioning whether they should have the willingness to pay. And every segment of 10, you go down that list, there are more and more schools discounting for affluent people. Hmm. So I guess I'm curious if parents that have the means to pay for their children to go to college are increasingly deciding that they should not do it, what are parents who don't have the means deciding these days? Like, are we seeing that they're as likely as they were in the past to want to, you know, co-sign a, a lot of a debt or that their children are willing to sign up for this debt? I mean, are we seeing... I guess, a similar hesitancy to spend that much money for education with people who don't have the means and that are going to have to borrow that money, too? Or are they just pushing forward as we have in recent years? You know, there has not been great data on parental borrowing in particular until recently, but the federal government is starting to flush more of this loose on a per school basis. And it is not pretty. Um, the amount of what's known as plus loans, those are the federal parent loans, um, the amount of plus loans, you know, per family, per institution um, has gone up at a relatively alarming rate. And it is not clear what the ceiling actually is on parental willingness to borrow. But these are our children in whom we have invested a great deal, and we've told them to work really hard and that somehow this will all work out. And so, so many parents get to this point, and it's not just lower income parents, it's it's parents with six-figure incomes who just decide to sort of, you know, chuck all reason and borrow as much as they need to so that their kid can have what the kid wants. And I'm not sure we've seen a, a, a sort of natural cap in that. Um, people make these decisions emotionally, and they want to make their kids happy, and they don't want to make a mistake. Um, I have younger kids, like my oldest child is almost nine. I know in the book, you talk about like, eighth grade being kind of the time that we should really be having some of these conversations about the cost of college. What should parents of younger kids like me already be thinking about? And like, what kind of conversations should we be having to change this emotional application to college or what we need to be thinking about in terms of the long term costs of, you know, paying for college and, and what you get as a return for that? It's tempting to treat that question as a personal finance question, but I would think about it more in terms of a couple's counseling question or a divorce <laughs> mediation question if you've got an ex or, or a couple of exes, right? Because I don't know that you can get so much through to a nine-year-old about this, and you may not be sure what kind of trajectory that nine-year-old is on anyway, right, in terms of the things they're interested in or their aptitude. But a spouse, if you've got one, or an ex, if you've got one of those, right, the two of you need to be on the same page about what you think you might be able to pay and what you might be willing to pay. There's that ability and willingness continuum and the gap too, right? And maybe you've never had the conversation or, or maybe the answers have changed, you know, where the two of you ask one another, well, wow, what, what would I do differently financially if I could make a different choice, if I could go back and fix whatever didn't work when, when I was 18, right? You may never have had that mm. conversation with your spouse or your ex. Um, and maybe the answer has changed since the last time you talked about it. So the two of you need to get on the same page. And if there's just one of you running the show and there's no other parent in the picture, go find somebody to talk to, right? Maybe a professional or just somebody who's smarter than you or somebody who's different from you, who can push your boundaries and, and question your assumptions. One of the things I really liked about this book is that you 
I have a whole section about what is worth paying for. And I think as people, as you say, start to doubt whether the enormous expense of college is worth it, they start to look for reasons, the sorts of things you should be thinking of as actual value adds to the proposition of sending your kid to college. In your reporting, what did you find that people were most satisfied in the end if they invested in these particular aspects of the college experience? What I was trying to train people to do is to ask better questions about the price that we might be willing to pay for college, right? And the first question is this one, what is college, right? It seems sort of silly, right? But if you're going to spend up to $300,000, you need to know what it is that you're actually shopping for. And for most people, it's some combination of three things in different proportions. You're shopping for an education, right? Mind grown, mind blown. Number two, you're shopping for kinship, right? The friends who will stay with you through life um, and the mentors who can help um, kind of drag you along by the scruff of your neck. And then number three is the credential. And that credential may help you get a firm toehold on the middle class and stay there with a, you know, a teaching degree or an accounting degree or a nursing degree. Or maybe you're reaching for a gold-plated degree that will take you places that you might not have otherwise been able to get to, right? So what is college. And then once you know what's important there, there's a whole list of things that might provide extra value depending on what's important to you, right? So it's things like how many real teachers, like actual professors who don't hate undergraduates, which a lot of them do, right? How many of them are going to be in the classroom? Will you meet them? Do you have an opportunity for them to become mentors? Um, You want to ask things like, what is the quality and state of the undergraduate mental health counseling centers? This is stuff that people never ask. But if your kid has had mental health challenges or you think that they might, this can be sort of make or break, right? And then the same thing with a career counseling office. If your child wants to be that philosophy major instead of the comp sci major, what exactly have they done to blow their career counseling office to smithereens and rebuild it? Because just about every school claims to have done that uh, in the last 10 or 20 years. But, you know, you want to ask more granular questions. And so, uh, you know, all of part three of The Price You Pay for College um, is about all these things that might be worth paying extra for. And I'm trying to arm people with pointed questions that these institutions are not used to answering to kind of raise an army of us to, you know, demand better information. So... What do you think that parents who find themselves in a position where their child is interested in a school that they're just simply not going to be able to afford or they don't feel uh, willing or capable of taking out loans to support them with? What are some of the things that they should be telling themselves and also saying to their children to help them deal with what could be a really crushing uh, disappointment? Yeah, I think it starts with the conversation with yourself, right? And whatever it is that you've done, you've almost certainly done your best. So um, in the second section of the book, I deal with three feelings, three different emotions that can lead people to go astray. And one of them is guilt. Everything, everything is harder than it was um, for our parents' generation right now. There are all of these things in our 
personal financial lives that we are more responsible for that cost more on an inflation-adjusted basis than it did for our parents. These state institutions are not being subsidized at the same rate. It's harder to get into the good ones because the admissions um, odds are lower. Everything is more difficult. So you need to stop having the conversation with yourself where you're making yourself feel guilty. Now, that may not help with a kid who, you know, with kids who just want what they want, um, especially if you've been telling them all along that they're going to be able to get it. And now you're finding that they won't. And so part of what you need to do on the front end is just try your best to figure out what the most reasonable cost-effective alternative might be where, you know, your child can get at least some of what they want. Now, that's going to require a fair bit of research, but I spent a lot of time reporting at college camp that I'd just never been to before or hadn't given much thought to over the years. The thing that felt especially good about the reporting was the realization that there are all of these places out there where my guess is that a lot of readers and listeners have, have never heard of or, or certainly never seen um, that do incredible work and they don't cost much more and may cost less than whatever your flagship state university costs. And so it's going to take some effort and some creativity, but those are out there to be found. The pandemic has obviously changed a lot of things and higher education is, you know, in there. I know students have decided that basically the, the price tag isn't worth it for just online education and have taken a gap year or have maybe come up with other options. So, you know, can you predict how that's going to affect kind of these prices going forward? I think that there is some hope out there if there already wasn't an, enough hope like Dan's that this whole thing would just like go off the rails um, more people are sort of rooting for higher ed to, to kind of take it in the shins this year um, and uh, you know what happened this fall I thought was fascinating right because in March everybody went home all of a sudden and found that of the three things that you potentially go to college for, right? Education, kinship, the credential. The education was kind of blown to smithereens. Nobody was learning much in the Zoom rooms. And the kinship was gone too because everybody was scattered, right? So the only thing you had was this degree that came in the mail and you like wore your cap and gown on your front lawn and your parents took pictures of you and it was sad and pathetic, right? And people sued and there was anger. And yet, and yet, in the fall, so many people flocked back to these campuses, paid full price for utterly compromised experiences. That felt bonkers to me. And yet I also recognize something important in it, which is that people crave the traditional residential undergraduate experience that we have come to see, rightly or wrongly, as a rite of passage in this country. And if you want to use technology to kind of blow the skyward, right, and you would expect that it would happen because software has run over pretty much every industry in America except for higher education. Um, if you hope or expect um, that technology is going to blow this up, it's it's not going to look anything like what happened this spring because mm. people hated that. Yeah. <laughs> they hated it. Yeah, and it. it was really remarkable seeing that the sacrifices people were willing to make in every other aspect of the college experience to try to give their kids some simulacrum of that like traditional residential experience, the ways they're willing to sacrifice the health of others, the health of communities in order to make that happen. Like it suggests that, that the market is more robust perhaps than we might think it is. 
<laughs> well, also, I mean, we should point our fingers at the bad faith of the institutions too. Let's just mm. let's just take North Carolina for instance, Ugh. the state of North Carolina. Um, what went on there was just an abomination. Um, you know, they they called all these kids back, they packed them mm. into dorms, they did not reduce density, and. And they weren't honest about why they were doing it. You know, we could have had an honest conversation where we said, you know what? If everybody doesn't come back this fall, these institutions are screwed, right? The states are going to have to, you know, raise taxes by 20% or cut budgets by 20%. The privates are, you know, going to have to fire a bunch of tenured faculty if we don't do this. Um, and if and when that happens, these institutions will not resemble the thing that you were paying for before. So we've got to figure out how to make a go of this. And that's why we're opening, right? That's why we're opening. And we need you to be extremely careful. And instead, they didn't do that at all, right? It's instead, my they stupid told a, alma mater you're talking about there, Ron. Instead, they told a different story. And, you know, a whole bunch of kids got sick. And, you know, I think the science on this is, is maybe not completely determined yet, but I'm pretty sure we'll find that there's, you know, a, a, a pretty convincing evidence that people died because of this. All right. Last question for you, Ron. Let's say you've got a kid who's, I don't know, 15. And they're, I don't know, a sophomore in high school. Is there one conversation that you think the parent or parents and the child should have right now about college that you think is going to head off a lot of problems down the road? What's like the one message I should be delivering or, you know, one, one parent, a parent should be delivering right around this time to help make this whole thing a little bit smoother down the road? I just so happen to have a 15-year-old myself, and here is what I try to do. I try to begin from a place of humility, which is a little hard, right? Because I've got this yeah, book no, coming out. Yeah, I've got this book coming out, right? People are asking me about it all the time. I'm you know, spouting off uh, literally every hour practically in her presence at this point. But with her, I try to approach it with humility, and I say the following. Um, we don't know what's going to be best for you or feel best for you because we haven't gone and looked at any of these places yet. You are still trying to figure out what it is that you're passionate about. And these schools may change a fair bit in terms of their priorities in the next couple of years. So there is a lot that we don't know. But we are going to do our level best to treat this with a reportorial mindset. Right? We are investigators here. We are consumers of this product. Um, and we are going to ask all of the right questions. If I'm sure about anything, it, it's this, right? At the end, we're going to find that there are a long list of places that could make you happy. And some of them will cost more than others. And you should just know that we are on it. That's great advice. Uh, I will tell Alia to have that conversation with Lyra ASAP. Thank you, Ron Lieber. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. As always, the book is called The Price You Pay for College. It is in stores now. Check it out. It is great. It will be both a balm and uh, panic-inducing for all of you out there in the audience. Uh, but I think you will find it helpful. Thanks, Ron. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's move on to this week's listener question. As per usual, it's being read by the phantasmagorical Shasha Leonard. Take it away, Shasha. Dear Mom and Dad, we have a five-year-old boy, our one and only. 
He's sweet, smart, funny, loving, and kind. He's an amazing kid. But sometimes I feel so much regret about having a kid at all. My husband and I both work from home. When we're not working, we love to be active and outside. But that is not our life right now. I have to wake up before the sun to get any work done. Then my husband and I switch off working throughout the day, and he stays up late to get his work done, which puts us on opposite sleep schedules. We also switch off doing outdoor activities, which we used to do together. When I'm home with my son, I daydream a lot about what else I could be doing or how much better I could be at my job. I daydream of being alone, of having the house to myself, making food slowly in the kitchen or napping in the hammock without being interrupted. We have no family nearby to help with the care of our son, and we can't afford a nanny. Plus, we don't want to invite someone into our home during the pandemic. But that means my husband and I get very little quality time alone. I love my son. I think he's incredible, and I give him lots of love and care and nurture him to the best of my ability. But this feeling is seeping in more and more. This dream of my husband and I growing old together, just the two of us, is one I can't shake. I worry that my feelings will come out and my son will find out how I feel. But I also worry that my life is passing me by while I wait for him to get old enough to join us rather than hold us back. I'm sick of being tied to someone else's schedule and needs and thus feeling like a prisoner. No one ever talks about this. Have you ever felt this way? How do I combat these feelings? Am I the worst or is COVID just hitting me extra hard right now? wanting to fly. Ugh. I just feel so much for this letter writer and want to say like, no, you're not the worst. I think everyone has felt this way at some point. And if you haven't felt this way, specifically during the pandemic, like what I mean, are you magical. doing? Lucky yeah. you. <laughs> but I think even before the pandemic, there have been moms and dads that we have known that have felt this way a lot. I think that it's definitely... Not atypical to mourn the loss of your life without children and also just be struggling with where you are with kids. And 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 one of the things I think is good is that the letter writer is able to vent to us about it. And I would encourage her to find someone, be that her partner or a therapist or a great group of friends to continue kind of this venting because it's going to fester into something that is unhealthy if you are not able to express this. Jeff and I have this thing wherever the kids are kind of like ruining something, he will just literally say, kids ruin everything. (laughs) And we're just like, (laughs) yeah, because there are so many moments where like without them, this would have been this like amazing thing. But then with them, it's so complicated. So I think one kind of leaning into that is really important. Um, Yeah, I would agree that what you're feeling is so not uncommon as I would say to be basically endemic. I think it's like a foundational state of parenting to feel it sometimes like no matter how much I love these kids, this is clearly the craziest thing I've ever done and I don't know how I'm going to make it through. And I would really urge you, letter writer, not only to, to find ways to keep venting about this, which I think is really valuable, but to... Find ways to think more broadly about the great 
scope and span of your life and the actually relatively small part that this parenting experience is going to play in it. You have one child, your one and only who you love. He's five, 12 years from now, essentially a blink of an eye in, in the life of a, an adult with a kid who's growing fast. Probably that kid is going to be out of your house. And this is not a way of saying this to be like, oh, treasure the moments because because he's going to be gone. But rather just to think that your dream of growing old with your partner is not gone. It's just different for the next decade or so. And it's different in ways that you recognize are sometimes good in, in all the wonderful things that your son brings to you and are sometimes bad in the struggles that you guys have, which are, which are endemic to parenting. And down the road, I think you're going to find that your 40s and 50s and 60s or whatever the period of your life is where you're not actively parenting again, just as you weren't before you had this child, are going to be richer and better and more vibrant and more wonderful in part because of the joys and challenges of this period. And it's worth it sometimes, I think, to think of parenting as not your whole life or the end of a certain kind of life, but simply an interlude in the long life that you are living. And thinking of it that way has often helped me at times when I have felt really like, oh, Jesus Christ, all I want is like just for a moment to myself. Human lives aren't in geologic time exactly, but comparatively they kind of are compared to the little blip, not only of the whole span of your time with this kid, but also this particular time with a five-year-old who's needy and doesn't want to go outside and doesn't do exactly what you want to do. Like that's going to change. Things are going to change over the years and try to bear that in mind. Cause I think that that will help. I would just add that, you know, you talk about daydreaming about having a moment to yourself to cook a meal the way you'd like to, or to just be alone. You have to make those dreams real. Parents must find time away from their children, whether you're married or single. If you have one kid, two kids, three kids, you have to have some space to be by yourself. And it can't only be for the purposes of doing work or going to the doctor. And even if it is, you know, a matter of my alone time is for a doctor's appointment or a grocery store trip, that you make that a pleasurable experience, that you have maybe some sort of aromatherapy thing in your car, have an oil burner in my car, you know? And so when I'm in the car by myself, I'm smelling my good oils. I'm I'm having, you know, I, I have my music, I have my podcast, it's just me. And that may seem like a really kind of a sad way to spend your downtime that maybe at one point you could have gone to a spa or out with your girlfriends. But when you ritualize having time to yourself, you know, it will mean a lot more to you now uh, to, to do those things. I think it's important that you do, that you don't leave that out. Um, otherwise, I really agree with what Dan and Elizabeth said. And this, this is a, a moment in your life and it's not always going to be this hard. It may feel frustrating because you're five years in, like it should feel easier by now. You should be used to it. You should love it. You should be okay. And that's not the case for everyone. You have to figure out a version of this stage that works for you. And it sounds like the one that you have now doesn't. And I would argue it's probably because you've left yourself out of the equation in so many ways that your life with children is not about being the death of the life you had before, but it's a different journey. If you've abandoned everything that made your life uh, livable in the past while you go on this new journey, then you're not going to like it very much. So you have to perhaps run back to your old life and see what you can scrape up 
for yourself uh, and grab it quickly. That's such good advice. And I think part of that too, finding that time is letting go of some of the expectations of parenting that you are putting on yourself. So if that means that, I mean, particularly in this pandemic, if that means that like on a Saturday, your kid just binges whatever TV keeps them quiet and occupied or just like plays video games or whatever that is, you should do that with zero regret or self whatever loathing like just let them do that and even if that is the routine you are not a bad parent whatever it is like there are things that are required and then there are all these other things that we hold ourselves accountable for to be done a particular way um i think we can let go particularly when you're going through a time like this of of those other requirements to make that time for yourself I also, there's like a one part in here where, um, of course, I grabbed onto where she's like, we switch off doing these outdoor activities. And I want to say, like, this is your in. Like, I understand your child probably doesn't want to go do these now. There are a million ways to make this outdoor thing something that you can do as a family. Jeff and I used to love to go on these hikes and travel and do all these things that the kids, we can't do it in the same way. But we're able to find these these moments of joys. And and I really think for a five-year-old, like, go geocaching with them. And maybe it's it's short at the beginning and you're going and finding this thing and it's the silliest activity, but like what five-year-old doesn't love a treasure hunt and it's going to get you out. And then if every time every hike is an opportunity to go geocaching, you will be amazed with those little poles are or every time you do an outdoor thing end it with a treat that they like like I think if you can incentivize those moments that you can do with your spouse and again I'm going to come back to geocaching because the nice thing is like we give the kids the phone and kind of send them ahead and it gives us a chance to kind of Jeff and I to walk together or to have those moments even with our kids kind of present but they're doing another activity that's happening in the same space so I think even if at first at five you know, you're only getting to the park or to a trail or to even just in your backyard, like whatever it is for 10 minutes, Uh, you know, try to say like these 10 minutes are going to become because we're getting used to it will become 20 minutes will become the ability to to do these longer, these longer journeys and finding some balance between finding things you can do now, and kind of holding on to those moments of joy and being able to laugh about all the time that the kid really ruins the other stuff is is kind of where a lot of us live. <laughs> like just, yeah, this is this is on the balance. Like there's a lot of really terrible things, but there's also some really fun, precious moments. And and like Dan said, it's fleeting. Like each age is a new kind of adventure. And that doesn't really help when you're when you're in it. But do know that the bad things pass just like the good things pass. Parenting really is, as as far as I can tell, basically feeling both of those ways at the exact same time in a way that this letter really beautifully illustrates. In fact, it's feeling an, an enormous amount of love for this person and recognizing the ways that they enrich your life and feeling frustrated and upset about all the things that they, as Elizabeth and Jeff put it, ruin. Um, and <laughs> it's not at all uncommon to feel this way. It's incredibly beneficial to talk about feeling this way. I would strongly suggest in this person's case talking about this, not only to their partner, but to a professional who can help you work through some of these feelings, especially right now. I do think a lot of parents are really fucking hitting a wall right now. 
almost a year into COVID. And as we're sort of coming to grips with how slow vaccination is happening and how likely it is that us getting the shot whenever that does happen is not going to instantly transform everything about the world the way we want it to, the way we wanted the election to, the way we wanted each thing to transform it. Nothing's actually going to be transformative, and there is a long slog ahead of us. I think a lot of people are really feeling some version of what this letter writer is feeling right now, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this letter on the show. The overwhelming weight of school calamity and health calamity and societal uh, chaos is just like really putting people on the brink. And it certainly is me. And, and so I think it's useful to vent a little and to commiserate a little and to find that community you can commiserate with. Sometimes you can find that inside your house with your partner. Sometimes you find it outside of your house with friends or family or a professional or a Facebook group or whoever, but really find it because it's all that a lot of us have right now and it's tremendously valuable. But are you guys feeling that too? Do you feel like everyone's just like a little more on edge even than like two months ago? It's all the hard stuff. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Jamila. I was just saying, absolutely. Sometimes when you're coming to the end of something and you can see the end, it's almost it's almost worse. Because before we were kind of like, oh, it's, you know, eventually this will end. We're in it. Now it's like, okay, we can kind of see the light. I, but we, it's so far we, away. Yeah, we um, hiked the Grand Canyon well before we had kids. And I just remember the, the last part of the hike, you're like a mile from the um, top, but you have like, two and a half miles to hike. And so, you know, cause you're just <laughs> zigzagging back and forth. Right. And I feel, I feel so much every day. Like that's where we are. Like I, it's right there, but I just can't, nothing I can do can make me get there any faster. Right. We just have to you slowly have to zigzag slowly our way up the canyon wall. Up. Yes. And there's, you know, donkeys and tourists and all the stuff I got to deal with on the way. Have some faith listener. I do think things are going to get better. I do think there's things you can actively do to make them better now, but we are really feeling for you. We're really feeling for all the parents out there who are really, really struggling right now. This is a hard time. Don't beat yourself up as much as you can stop beating yourself up. Uh, And yeah, find people to talk to. We really want to hear from you again. We want to hear about how things are going. We want to hear about who you're talking to about this. So check in with us, please. Wanting to fly Um, and check in with us. All of you listeners, check in on the Facebook group, tell folks how you're doing, send us an email, tell us how you're doing. And if you got a question or something else you want us to address, just email us at momanddadatslate.com or post it to that group and we'll talk about it in a future show. Good luck wanting to fly. We're thinking about you. All right. On to recommendations. Elizabeth, what do you want to recommend this week? Uh, I'm recommending something we took camping, which was this uh, Luminade solar inflatable lantern. It is so perfect. It it runs on solar power. So great. If you forgot to bring everything with you, it still lights up. But it actually, it packs totally flat and it inflates and gives you enough light to kind of like do things in your tent or around camping. Or um, it's just kind of nice to have in the emergency kit. The kids loved it. It's like soft and light and they could carry it. It was, it, it worked so much. It was one of these things that someone gave us and I was like, this is um, like my parents got it for us for camping. And I was like, what it like a solar inflatable light like this sounds I like it will never work. I don't even understand work. why it needs to be inflatable. Because um, as it inflates, that's what 
disperses the light. So it has like a couple little LEDs in it and then it disperses the light to give you more light. Anyway, it was love. It was so great. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> love it. Jamila, what about you? I am recommending an old throwback, uh, Highlights Magazine. If you have not seen a Highlights Magazine since you were yourself uh, in primary school, it's still around. It's been around since like 1946. I think it's the oldest magazine for children, like literally 1946. Um, and it's, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm no, I believe you. Yeah, 1946. Um, <laughs> so it's outlived nearly every American magazine. Uh, and it's still really delightful. Naima was gifted a subscription for uh, Christmas by one of my girlfriends and she loves it. We've gotten two issues so far. Goofus and Gallant are still there uh, <laughs> showing you right and wrong. There's lots of activities and coloring pages and it's really fun. And I think that, you know, especially considering your kids are probably seeing more things coming in the mail uh, now than in the past, because so many of us are having things delivered that we might have otherwise gone to buy. But aside from that, you know, most of our bills come in electronically. We don't do a lot of snail mailing, uh, many of us. And getting mail is exciting. And getting mail as a kid is super exciting. So um, it's a two for one. You get the benefit of your child having this cool educational uh, publication to read. And they also get to look forward to having a piece of mail while we still have a United States Postal Service to deliver it to them. I'm a huge fan of magazine subscriptions for kids. It's the greatest gift. Jamila, I just saw too that they, um, in the latest episode, they actually have a podcast called Highlights Hangout for Kids that has a like goofus and gallant uh, segments. Very cute. That's adorable. I can't wait to hear their their voices. I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm like, what could they possibly sound like? All right. Good recommendation. I'm going to recommend when your baby is born, get one of those one line a day books and actually fucking do it. <laughs> Put it next to your toothbrush or whatever. Just do it. Make it happen. They have ones now that, that text you a prompt and you text the stuff back and then it sent, it prints. That is it a great idea. Who makes that? Wait, wait, who makes that? I need that. So it's called Keepsake with a Q and it sends you a little text every day and you reply with an answer and a picture and then it prints so the book Q-E-E-P-S-A-K-E. for you. Q-E-E-P-S-A-K-E. Uh, and it's a, a excellent recommendation, yeah. even better than mine, which is to just get the fucking book. But uh, either way, just do it. That is my recommendation for today. All right, that's our show. One more time, if you need advice or if you just need to vent, email us at slate.com or post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. I would say that 70% of the messages to Slate Parenting right now are just venting. Uh, and I think it's really helping people, honestly, just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. Also, hey, subscribe to the show if you haven't already. It really helps us out and it makes sure that you will not miss an episode. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. June Thomas is senior managing producer and Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Gabriel Roth, RIP, is Slate's editorial director for audio. For Jamila Lemieux and Elizabeth Newcamp, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.